On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. Joy Harjo is a saxophone player and performer, a visual artist, a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, and 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. She's written... Though we have instructions and a map buried in our hearts when we enter this world, nothing quite prepares us for the abrupt shift to the breathing realm. I'm grateful for this hour she gave us to walk alongside her in the breathing realm and to experience what she knows about how to see and how to live. I'll be in a car or a bus or van or or whatever, looking at the houses and the windows and all the storefronts and thinking about all the different realms, all the different story realms and how many, every place, every window, every doorway is an opening to a life. You know, a whole different life, a whole series of stories. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. Joy Harjo is the celebrated author of nine books of poetry and the memoir, Crazy Brave. She edited the collection of Native Nations poetry, When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. And her most recent album is I Pray for My Enemies. Joy Harjo was born and lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where six generations ago, her ancestors were forcibly relocated from their homelands in Alabama. So I actually started reading Crazy Brave a few months ago during the pandemic. And I kind of read it like poetry. I read it a little bit at a time and savored it a bit at a time, which was a wonderful way to read it. And in preparing to be with you, I looked at other some other interviews you've done. And um, I really want to draw into your sensibility, your gifts of seeing and knowing, which includes vision and dreams and memories that are not contained in this lifetime. And I I felt like people don't really go there with you, although you go there in your writing. You know, for example, you, you've written that you relived your own birth in a vision on a mountainside in Colorado, or I think around the age of 40. And I wondered, you know, normally a question will be to somebody, where did you grow up? <laughs> Which we'll talk about that too. But I'd love to hear about what you what you saw about your own birth. Um, start there. Well, did I write that in yeah. the crazy? I actually put that in crazy brain. You did. Well, I guess I opened myself up for that because I try to embed things so that I don't, you know, so that I don't appear crazy because well, see, these things are yeah but they're just that you're as not real. crazy i think that's why people don't talk about it because it's hard to talk about this way of seeing and knowing right so i just want to see if we can do that um with the dignity that it possesses in your writing for sure i mean i mean here's some things you wrote about that you said though i was reluctant to be born i was attracted by the music i had plans I did not want to leave mystery, yet I was ever curious and ready to take my place in this story. Um, I'm just so fascinated that you had those apprehensions. 
Yes, what happened? So I'm a great grandmother now. I was a grandmother in my 30s and a teenage mother. Yeah. And what that's given me is a kind of a, a broader sense of the story field. Yeah. And I've certainly, yes, I've been at the birth of my children, but I've always tried to get there when a grandchild is being born. And and what I've noticed, and I've noticed this with newborn infants, is they, they still remember, they're still carrying uh, memories and stories. They still know things. Um, mm-hmm. Even when they're young, I remember my daughter skipping up to me when she was three. She used to say, when I used to be a boy, yeah. when I used to be a boy and would just cry if I wanted to take her to the girls' section for clothes. And I have a granddaughter who's come up to me and said, well, we used to know each other. When we knew each other, da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's obvious that, that she and I have an old connection. Yeah. So when I was an infant, I used to travel. My spirit would leave my body. Well, we can say we do that when we dream. Some mm-hmm. dreams are I eat too much pizza or I eat pizza when I shouldn't dream. Others have a different cast to them, and others we know instinctually to pay attention. Now, what happens is, you know, this we don't live in a society generally that supports dreams as knowledge. Yeah. And we're not living in a place like that. But think about it, you know, that's about half of our lives we're out gathering information that we may not bring forth consciously. And for some of us, it's like it's a library that we go to when we need to know Mm. something. Mm. Uh, It works in that way. Yeah, and children do come out with things like that, and there's a reality to it. (laughs) <laughs> that adults don't know what to do with. I, have you ever heard, there's this, it made me think of this story that occurs both in, in Judaism and Islam, that before each of us is born, the angel Gabriel kisses each child on the forehead, and they are born, and then they begin to forget it all. And I was, I was thinking of that story, I mean, one way to talk about that thing that we observe, with, that you describe so richly. Yes, it's like we go into the place of forgetfulness because yeah. to remember everything would be, we have enough burdens here. Mm. You know, many of them have certainly have, uh, they're tethered elsewhere, but I think it's it can be too much to know all of that because we're here to, you know, see what we will do without that. You know, Crazy Brave went through several versions. I was 14 years late turning it into the publisher, which is not like me. I get my work in on time or I wouldn't have a career. And one of the versions was like twice as many pages as the final version. And that's because I cut all the dreams out. Really? Pretty much, yes. (sighs) And I was trying to figure out how to embed them. My new memoir, Poet Warrior, which will be out in September, it's similar but different. And it's certainly it's coming from a different point of view from being much older yeah. and looking back. Because when we come through that doorway, when we take on breath or inspire spirit, we take on the spirit here and we're young, we are close to that door of knowing everything, you know, the door of mm-hmm. uh, eternity. And we're so creative, and artists of any sort are always trying to replicate or be in that kind of space. And then when you get older, when you cross the 50-year 50, 50 mark, you know 
<laughs> you know, you're you're starting to head out the other way. And then when you get to my age, you realize it it's it opens up. It's not like maybe some people become children again, but what it does is it's you're once again closer to that kind of yes. of knowing and awareness. Yes. Yeah, it's another thing we don't really know how to talk about. It's fascinating, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, yes, and it's, sometimes it's called wisdom. That's a, right. That's a, yeah, that's what I, and, it, and it is because it's wisdom beyond what um, our mentality, our earth mental minds, our earth mentality, it's much larger and more immense than earth mentality. Yeah. So, Joy, I um, grew up in Oklahoma. Oh, really? Yeah, I grew up in Shawnee. Oh, okay. And so for me, that's a big uh, point of connection in starting to read you. Although, you know, to be honest, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the story field a minute ago, and you, you also use this language I love of the story matrix that connects all of us. But when I think about the Oklahoma, the sense of Oklahoma you had and the sense of Oklahoma that I had, it's almost more like parallel universes. Mm-hmm. Um. In terms of, I mean, I think we're in this time, and I am personally part of this, in this time of waking up to all the stories I didn't learn growing up, right? The mm-hmm. stories of the place I was in. I mean, your, the place of your childhood and the places of my childhood had this completely different realm of story and song and spirit. You know, what you describe is a different cartography. And I mean, I grew up in Shawnee. Next door was Tecumseh. We're in Pottawatomie County, right? Seminole is a place I know. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Muskogee is a place I know. And what, what kind of puzzles me at this stage in my life and at this stage in our waking up as a civilization, which I do think is happening, however fitfully, is that the place names were retained, right? I, I, I wonder about that, why they retained the place names when all the stories and the meanings and the significance were removed for people growing up there who were not tribal. And so, I don't know, I just, I wanted to put that out there as we begin as something that's very much on my heart as I, as I read you. And I feel like I'm learning about the place I came from in a way I've longed to, but was certainly not offered to me in my official education, right? (laughs) In school. Yes, in a more rural Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are many different realities. Um, I think about all of those different realities. You know, when you come into, especially when you come into a new town, I travel a lot and I'll be in a car or a bus or a van or or whatever, looking at the houses and the windows and all the storefronts and thinking about all the different realms, all the different story realms and Mm -hmm. how many, every place, every window, every doorway is an opening to a life. You know, a whole different life, a whole series of stories, and 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 it's multiplied hundreds and thousands of times, and and some don't overlap at all. Some are in their their very um, private universes. Other universes are more expansive. Yeah, it's amazing to me uh, to go. You know, to have lived my first eighteen years in a place and have all of those names carry the experience that they did. But, you know, not to have known, you know, that when I say Potawatomi, that's a nation, right? That one Muskogee, 
that you were from the Muscogee Creek Nation, who Tecumseh was, mm-hmm. um, that he was of the Shawnee tribe. Um, you know, even when you described Tulsa, where you grew up, just this is not a way I would ever have known Tulsa, a Creek Indian town established on the Arkansas River after my father's people were forcibly removed from their homes in the South in the mid-1800s. Yeah, and there's there's different universes. And and what happens in this country is that natives, are, our stories, our presence has basically dis, been disappeared from the American story because if it's true, if it's true that we're still here and if it's true that what did happen was, you know, was grand theft and massacre, then there's something inherently broken with the story mm-hmm. that needs to be repaired. The other thing, too, is that we are here, and yet people expect us to be in our traditional outfits if, they want, if we're recognized. They don't recognize us unless we're mascots or yeah. we're wearing our traditional outfits. Um, you know, you also refer a number of times in your writing to the easy and familiar humor of Oklahoma Indians that others would recognize. Tell me about that. Oh, man, I wrote a whole chapter of it, <laughs> of it in my, you know, I think it goes with people. I, it seems to me that the people who have been are still very close to their collective suffering in removal and, and so on. One uh, trick of survival is the development of a tremendous sense of humor, hmm. and especially I mean I've been around natives all over the all over the world, but there's something about Oklahoma natives, you know, something about a, a southern kind of openness, which get makes more holes for laughter to go through, or the, you know the <laughs> ironic <laughs> for the ironic to live. Certainly, maybe just living is ironic because there's always dying, you know. So, and a lot of self deprecation. Right. I thought one thing I might do there are some striking passages that I feel kind of invite someone inside your sense of who you are and and how you hold a sense of that that goes so much farther back than the story matrix that most that that American culture is aware of most of the time or ever um this kind of cosmic sensibility you have i don't see you using the word spiritual very often is that too narrow a word i think part of that comes from not wanting to so many Images of natives or stereotypes are yeah. usually around bloodthirsty warriors or uh, spiritual guardians who know everything and are protective and, and so on. And certainly because these lands are inherently indigenous, uh, there is, you know, ultimately everything is spiritual. <laughs> Every, ultimately everything has a spirit is connected spiritually. Mm-hmm. But that I think that if I think about it, that would be why I, I try to stay away from that because one, I don't want to be interpreted as that kind of figure necessarily. Yeah. I, it's important that I think that everyone realizes that they have a connection with the natural world. It's not something that just belongs to the indigenous peoples. We might be closer because we've been here longer 
to, you know, particular elements of it, but, you know, this is something that is inherently part of the legacy of human beings. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with musician and U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo. So your father was a, was a complex character who you loved, and you, you, you kind of lost him through divorce. He, he, he wasn't as present in your life. He was born of tribal leadership, is that right? Osceola, the Seminole warrior, was... Was his uncle? Uh-huh. Is that correct? So here's something you wrote about him. My father was ephemeral. He was about 10% body. The other 90% of him was spirit and was unreachable even to him. This earth can be difficult and jarring. Joy can only be known through despair here. He was about 10% body. I've noticed that with people. In another passage, I describe my mother as fire, you know, as somebody who is much more actively engaged with the, the physicality of being. But my father, my sense of him was that he was overwhelmed with what he knew and what he could not say, and a kind of perceptual awareness that he had no place for. What was he going to do with it? Right. He didn't, um, his family had been broken. His mother died when he was young. He had a stepmother who came from a totally different sensibility and life went on. The domestic sphere was was uprooted and then they sent him off to military school when mm-hmm. he was a young man. And he's so, I just see this, this deep, deep, essential spirituality and knowing, and he didn't have a path. He had no one to show him how to use those gifts. I'm, I'm intrigued by this, um, and I, I think about this too from a different spiritual tradition, about how somehow the body, and I want to I know if this is what you're saying, that in some ways we need our bodies, we need to inhabit our bodies more fully in order to really inhabit our souls. Um, is that what you're saying? That could be part, partly it. And, and I think of that especially when a lot of us in American education were so influenced by Descartes and yeah, that system yeah. that Chin says, up. yes, or the uh-huh. Puritans, which were part of the uh, origin stream of America, which, you know, the body was something unholy and something to be disregarded and even disciplined you know, disciplined and disregarded. And when the body is really part of an incredible garden, those Mm. are two opposing approaches or universes or realms. And how do you rectify or how do you even find, is there any kind of path possible between them? Yeah. And is finding that path between them and and having them be in interplay with each other part of... um... I don't know, the path to wholeness or to healing? Perhaps. I mean, we're, we are right in the middle of it right now all over the world in, you know, in oppositional 
government's oppositional ways of thought, you know, one in which women are to be controlled and, and the body is, is considered a tempter or um, it's, you know, it, it seems like we're still in that no matter history and layers of history and we we're in that, we're still in that kind of, I don't want to call it a war, but perhaps it is. Yeah. Um, it was very, it was quite joyous and fascinating to read your writing about your, your early life, your young adulthood, which had hardship in it. Um, you, as you said, you, you're, you were a teenager when you first became a mother. To be reading all of this and um, to know that your story was going to progress to you becoming Poet Laureate of the United States. <laughs> That's <you> know, crazy. <laughs> I mean, there's That's this passage I wrote down. I was like, you know, um, the morning your son was born, his father dropped you off at the hospital and then went to work. And you, you wrote... It was still dark as we walked through the cold morning under oaks that symbolized the stubbornness and endurance of the Cherokee people. They made Tahlequah their capital in the new lands. I looked for handholds in the misty gray sky. I wanted to change everything. I wanted to go back to a place before childhood, before our tribe's removal to Oklahoma. And he wrote, I wanted more and I didn't know how to get it. And, and I didn't at that point. Yeah. I mean, think about it. We had no money. We had no resources. And I used to walk those streets wondering. I knew that there was something more, and I had, there There was no door. The only thing that kept me sane, I think, was, well, I'm very grounded, for one, but, and I have a lot of common sense. I mean, I'm very, I think I'm half, I'm half mentality. My mind is always working, and then I'm half into it, you know, creative intuition. Yeah. And so those places can meet. And maybe thinking about the question earlier about these oppositional ways of thinking, well, I think they can meet when it comes to creativity, when it comes to making art. And I think in the end, that's what really helped me through was, you know, developing disciplines of art. I used to draw and make art. And then I, then when I was a student at University of New Mexico, I got into writing and it was that discipline of art, which gave, you know, visioning is one way that, and the ability to vision and having tools for visioning helps any of us out of almost impossible situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, um, you also had a very difficult stepfather, a situation in, in your home when your mother remarried. And, but you, how did you talk about it? You went to the Indian school in Santa Fe. Uh, you said you escaped the winter of your childhood in the Indian school in Santa Fe. And that, that place also gave you, uh, or I don't know, you had the arts, but it it welcomed that, right, and drew that out of you. Well, one, I, I was safe. Yeah. I was in a safe place yeah. away from uh, danger. And two, I was with... My community, there were Native students from eighth grade to two years postgraduate from all over the country, and every one of us had applied to get in with our respective arts. 
And we were all two of a generation. And I think every generation is a kind of person and every generation has an energy. And mm. we came in with this collective story to tell and, and a kind of urgency too, you know, coming in on, uh, with framed by the, the civil rights movement and, and then finding our places, you know, our voices and our place in the American story as indigenous peoples. So it wasn't the usual tale of Indian school like Carlisle Indian School, which yeah. was founded by the uh, Mr. Pratt. You know, we're going to kill the Indian, find the human being, and we're going to do it through, you know, military um, discipline at Indian School. It's a, it was a very different kind of school. We had some of the best artists, Native artists, predominantly Native artists and non-Native artists in the country, and that was uh, our curriculum, as well as academics, which was, mm, it was all right. It was not the strong point of the school. And yet we had in place a military system and th words like restriction and detail and, hmm. you know, those kinds of, of words and, and rules. But at the same time, we were given permission to create and create we did. Our class and our generation really shifted native art in the contemporary world art scene. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about something. Um, you wrote about Father John Staudenmeyer, mm -hmm. who was one of your teachers there. Um, and you said, so you really actually, I mean, as you say, you you always painted and drew and, and made music. Um, and it was really even later than this that you became a poet that you understood yourself as a poet, I think. But you said he was the first person to talk to you about the soul. And he wrote this intriguing sentence. He asked me to pay attention to the poetry of the living. Tell me what that means, what that holds for you, that phrase, the poetry of the living. The poetry of the living. Well, what is poetry? Is poetry? I think of poetry as a kind of lyricism. I think of poetry as a place beyond words <laughs> that we, uh, you know, the paradox is we use words to get there. This is Joy Harjo performing opening song for the maker from her album Winding Through the Milky Way, for which she won a Native American Music Award for Best Female Artist of the Year. human mind is small when thinking of small things. It is large when embracing the maker of walking, thinking, and flying. More with Joy Harjo after a short break. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're in the presence of the extraordinary Joy Harjo. She is a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation and 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. She's been a visual artist and musician all of her life and became a poet in her 20s. It does seem like, um, it sounds like when you write poetry, you are receiving and learning as much as you are teaching or that there's a revelation for you in the act of writing poetry. Yes, I think that's why I went to it is because it's, it's sort of like, you know, unless it's an epic poem, but even then... It is kind of a pocket. It's a doorway, a doorway. Uh, a poem can be like a pocket that can hold anything, almost anything. And you can head to hold different kinds of times. It can hold grief, it can hold history. And it is often, you know, a poem has come to me or through me and, and it's taught me what I needed to know. One of my most, uh, it was a poem that was used often, was fear song or fear poem poem to get rid of fear and I wrote that it was one of the earliest poems I wrote and that's because I needed it hmm. and so when you're writing and I think when you're creating too it's the large part of that act of writing or whether it's music or stories or poetry or or drawing or any of the and it's it's um, a large part of it is listening mm-hmm. yeah and it's true that our um there's so much noise. There's so much. There's so much noise and kind of clutter in what we take in now as a matter of routine, minute to minute and hour to hour. It's kind of. Hard, I think it's harder to get to that place of listening, just organically clearing some space for listening. Now it really is, and there's all kinds, and it's been programmed that way. You'll hear a ding. I was in the middle of something the other day, and I heard a ding on one of them. I try to turn them all off. Yeah, and I realized I hadn't caught that one, but it just sets up this. It's like Pavlov's dog. This, yeah, it, and it's shocking. It shocked me when I realized that here, my body was was reacting, and that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah, I wanted to stay on my track of listening, and it was disturbing to me. And I'm thinking, what is all of this leading to? Why? Why is it necessary? Is um, somebody? I, the way I usually what I usually come down to is somebody is hungry for money. So if they keep you there with these sounds, if they addict you, then they will have your attention, and your attention means money for them. Mm-hmm. But it becomes such a vast web of reality and detail, right? The complexity of what the offerings are and how they've become integrated into our lives. But as you say that, I'm thinking of a dream that Mm. I had the other night with my my grandson, Chasen, Mm. who is a beautiful young man, six feet two, who has left Albuquerque, has a job in Roswell, and I love my grandson so much. And he was in my dreams. He's not always, we were very present with each other in the dream. And we're talking about, I had a few things to tell him, and we're standing there, and then I said, look, and we were watching the stream of consciousness, where, or unconsciousness, or whatever you want to call it. We were watching together how every thought goes into the stream, every thought, every dream, every action, 
and we were watching the the immense stream of all of this and how it was making patterns and how there were actual patterns and shapes and you know it was an immense creative field but it was beautiful and it was woven together perfectly even though you would think that it could be a chaotic mess yeah i'm still thinking about that yeah i'd love to maybe hear some talk a little bit about your uh your poetry collection an american sunrise mm-hmm. would you just tell the story of this volume this idea Yes, I had taken a job at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and wonderful people, one of the best, you know, I, I'm still in touch with them there. And I took it uh, for a number of reasons, but one, it was down in our homelands, and my husband, who's the same tribal nation, same ceremonial ground, we wanted to go see all of these places our families came from. We still knew names of places, stories, and I even found a house that belonged to an uncle of mine in Columbus, Georgia. And the book got started because we were preparing to leave, to go back to Tulsa. And I was thinking, what do I do with this? We came here looking for our people, looking for the stories for this place that our, our origin stories have their roots here. Our people's roots are here in these plants, like these kind of plants. And, um, it's so beautiful, and I can see why why sometimes people would say, don't go back, because it's devastating. It would break mm. your heart. And there I'm thinking, we are so excited about going back to Tulsa, going what we call home. How can this be? What do I do with this? Because do with this with the heartbreak that happened when we were forcibly walked out of our homes at gunpoint, uh, loaded up, and marched across you know, states across the Mississippi too. You know, what do I do with this? What do I do with this contradiction? And I was looking out into the trees there one morning and the, uh, my spirit says, well, you know, what did you learn here? And that's how the book came. That you started writing these poems. Out, um, out of that yes. question? Mm-hmm. Yes, out of that question. Mm-hmm. Would you read the first poem, Break My Heart? Okay, yes, I will. That's called an Ars Poetica, which is the art about the art of writing poetry, which is also the art of living. Poetry mm-hmm. and living, <laughs> they're often the same thing. Yeah. Okay, Break My Heart. There are always flowers, love cries, or blood. Someone is always leaving by exile, death, or heartbreak. The heart is a fist. It pockets prayer or holds rage. It's a timekeeper, music maker, or backstreet truth teller. Baby, 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 you can't say what's been said before, though even words are creatures of habit. You cannot force poetry with a ruler or jail it at a desk. Mystery is blind, but wills you to untie the cloth in eternity. Police with their guns cannot enter here to move us off our lands. History will always find you and wrap you in its thousand arms. Someone will lift from the earth without wings. Another will fall from the sky through the knots of a tree. Chaos is primordial. 
All words have roots here. You will never sleep again, though you will never stop dreaming. The end can only follow the beginning, and it will zigzag through time, governments, and lovers. Be who you are, even if it kills you. It will, over and over again, even as you live. Break my heart, why don't you? Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with musician and U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo. Amidst all of the drama of 2020, there was this incredible Supreme Court decision, <laughs> McGirt versus Oklahoma, which, you know, Joy, it almost feels like another example of, I mean, you, you talked a little while ago about this, this invisibility somehow, this amnesia, but this way that in this culture, this, this part of our story, of your story, of our collective stories disappeared. And and this was an incredible Supreme Court decision in the middle of 2020, and there was so much else going on. So, you know, I, I kind of having, being from Oklahoma, I just, I felt like everybody should be talking about this. And you did write about it in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. There was this incredible language in there by Justice Neil Gorsuch. Um, on the far end of the trail of tears was a promise. Yes. Forced to leave their ancestral lands in Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Nation received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. And essentially, he decreed that much of Oklahoma is still sovereign tribal, legally sovereign tribal land. So, yeah, tell me about experiencing that. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's sort of like it's uh, – it was stunning. Yeah. <laughs> Especially out of the time and the particular court, in the middle of all of it, to have this decision come through that reaffirmed what we already knew, to affirm that, yes, we, you know, we were sent here, these lands, we were told that if we moved, or when we moved, that we, these would be our lands under our own governance, and quickly that was undone. And it was celebration. I mean, we couldn't be out in person necessarily because of the pandemic. But it was, I mean, people were crying in tears. And I could just feel, like my Aunt Lois and others, I mean, to have this decision come down after all of we, what we've gone through here and the state and continue to go through. So there is that and that incredible celebration And then I think it was a day later, was it a day or two days later, I had a dream. I woke up. We were getting ready to drive to do the foundation tracks of my new album in Port Townsend, Washington. We were going to drive a little van, RV van, to socially distance. And the news comes down. And I had had a dream the night before. I saw the Supreme Court building and I saw it blow up. 
And then I start getting these calls and these texts and emails saying, you know, already there were people in the state, and I won't name names, legislators and such, who were trying to destroy it immediately. Hmm. You mean in Oklahoma? Yes, they were at work, you know, to destroy the decision to enact emergency laws or they were being they thought they were being very tricky to totally undo it overnight and that was so of course they would it's still disturbing because i see it there's it's still happening and what you know what is it is it this deeply inherent racism culturalism you know hatred of or the need to feel like they have dominion, or they feel like they do, they deserve dominion. I, I try to understand it, the roots of it, to understand how to move gracefully and find a way for, you know, everyone to live in a peaceable in a manner in which, you know, everyone wants. I would think that everyone wants a place for their children, but to live and to live peaceably. But why aren't we included in? As human, you know, we're still being excluded and we're still, mm. it's still there. Those same people that moved us are still there. The same people that, you know, signed off and, and drove us and, and forced us out of the South into the Tulsa, they're still there. You wrote in the New York Times that you said your elders always believed that there would be justice Though justice is sometimes seven generations away or even more, it is inevitable. And that that's real to you still, even in the face of of this despair that you just described. But I mean, I've, hold those things together. I have grandchildren, great-grandchildren and children. And in the original teachings, we're told that they're all our children. And how can I... I have to think of them, and they're the rudder of hope. I mean, that's where we're going Mm -hmm. with them. I have to know that there is a larger, beautiful sense. And it's in those teachings that, that we're all working towards a kind of harmony. Everything is about, I think even, you know, all the teachings ultimately wind up, the stories, everything wind up at a point of harmony. And when you wind up at that point, everything will be reckoned with. I feel like you have this sense of different kinds of time. So there's history, there's the time of European settlement, um, there's a lifetime, and there's also somewhere, you, I can't know where this is, you write about the whole of time, W-H-O-L-E, which makes that perspective possible. I think so. I mean... I think if if you stay in the mind, in the human mind, you're not going to... A human mind tends to be pretty literal, even as it can jump around, but it's not... It doesn't necessarily have the access to other kinds of time. You can think about it and analyze it and, and make structures and architecture to hold the ideas of other kinds of time, but you have to, um... You know, just like you wouldn't use a certain kind of meter to measure electricity that doesn't measure electricity, Mm. you know. Yeah. It's like you need something else to, you know, there's another kind of 
perspective that you bring to understand or even move within time that would give you that perspective. I mean, that's why that image, that NASA image of the Earth when it was released, because it was top secret for a while, that showed the Earth as a beautiful, beautiful being was so powerful because it shifted, certainly it shifted awareness. Yeah. And it gave us a perspective which, you know, going into a larger kind of time or place can, like, like my grandson and I standing there watching this field that we were inside of even as we were watching it, it gave us that glimpse into even another kind of time, even the Internet and the idea of networks can be linked to that image. Yeah. And the story matrix and the story field, as you describe, also is mm-hmm. more generous and expansive than mm-hmm. that linear cultural imagination. It, it's in sync with that idea, with that vision. Um, I watched this beautiful ceremony that was kind of your inaugural, or not your inauguration, but your inaugural pr- appearance as Poet Laureate. Uh, was it the National Book Festival? And I'm 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 assuming that you were the first poet laureate to walk out on stage with her saxophone around her <laughs> neck. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I don't think <laughs> there were actually a few poets who play saxophone, but no, I think that I yeah, I'm the first one to yeah. do that. <laughs> um, there's a there's a um, Let's see. It's page seventy-seven. When you when you tell this story, uh, this is in in an American Sunrise when Adolf Sachs patented the first saxophone on June twenty-third. <laughs> Would you read that? Yes, I like that piece. Yeah, and I always say thank you to Adolf Sachs that I use my poetic license and write a poem where a rabbit invents the saxophone. Yes, yes, <laughs> that comes before it. It's too long for yes. radio. <laughs> Okay. When Adolf Sachs patented the first saxophone on June 23, 1846, the Creek Nation was in turmoil. The people had been moved west of the Mississippi River after the Creek Wars, which culminated in the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. We were putting our lives back together in new lands where we were promised we would be left alone. The saxophone made it across the big waters and was introduced in brass bands in the south. The music followed rivers into new towns, cities, all the way to our new lands. Not long after, in the early 1900s, my grandmother, Naomi Harjo, learned to play saxophone. I can feel her now when I play the instrument we both loved and love. The saxophone is so human. Its tendency is to be rowdy, edgy, talk too loud, bump into people, say the wrong words at the wrong time, but then you take a breath all the way from the center of the earth and blow. All that heartache is forgiven. All that love we humans carry makes a sweet, deep sound, and we fly a little. This is Joy Harjo performing Rabbit Invents the Saxophone from her album, I Pray for My Enemies. When one of the last trails of tears wound through New Orleans, Rabbit, that ragged trickster, decided he wanted to be a musician. He was tired of walking, and they had all the fun. They got all the women. Fans gave them smoked drinks, and he could have all kinds of new friends to do his bidding. But Rabbit 
hadn't proved to be musical. When he led its stomp dance, no one would follow. No shell shaker would shake shells for him. He was never invited to lead, even when the young ones were called up to practice. The first thing a musician needs is a band, he said to his friends. The hottest new music was being made at Congo Square. So many tribes were jamming there, African, native, Cuban, and a few remnant French, making a new music of melody, love, and beat. Joy Harjo is the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. She is the author of nine books of poetry, including An American Sunrise and She Had Some Horses. Also, two memoirs, Crazy Brave and, more recently, Poet Warrior. She has edited several collections of poetry, including Living Nations, Living Words, an anthology of First Peoples Poetry, that was a project of her Poet Laureate tenure. And she has also produced several award-winning albums of music. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Loren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Gautam Shrikashen, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, and Amy Chatelaine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.